Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Wolf Tyvee, co-founder of Palladian Mag. Wolf, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So Wolf, one of the things that Palladian is, is focused on doing is identifying and describing uh, what's after the liberal order, the, po- the post-liberal uh, synthesis, post-liberal order. Why don't you first define what is the liberal order, uh, what are the problems of it, and then we can get into what might be next. Sure. Yeah, so it's hard to sort of like really pin the thing down because it's never really... It's not a very precise uh, system that that like really defines itself openly. It's more like okay, if you look at kind of the way governance has gone, especially in the Anglosphere in the West, in the last few hundred years, you see these trends towards what generally gets called liberalism, and then you've got particular instantiations of that, like after World War II, the kind of American liberal world order. That, that is, that was sort of like being built through the latter half of the 20th right. century. And we're, we're really like increasing democracy, increasing freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like one of the big common threads between sort of all these liberal systems is, you know, there's this, this claim that it's an open society in the sense that there's kind of open debate about everything. There's free speech. There's, you know, human rights. There's freedoms. Um, it's really based on property rights. It's based on like the market, et cetera. All these kind of ideas. Um, that come together and especially democracy, right? There's this idea that uh, sovereignty is held by the people and that they elect representatives who then go on and govern on their behalf, right? And so you have this idea, this, it's really a bunch of claims of legitimacy and claims of like what's going on in society. As far as how it actually works, that changes over time, right? From sort of 1933, right after the Great Depression to 1973 uh, with Nixon's reforms, you had a very different regime, very different type of regime than like, you know, from 73 to, yeah, let's say recently until now, more or less. And, you know, immediately in those post-war years, you know, the New Deal, the war effort, the Apollo era, the early Cold War, you're talking about a government that's like, it just has a very different character from what's going on now. It's very much more coordinated. It's much more ambitious it's much more optimistic etc um and i think even almost structured differently in just how they get things done and then after sort of 1973 there's this kind of like marketization of everything you get increasing sort of polarization over time the structure of the regime obviously didn't change hugely but like there's a definite difference in character of the thing you look at the actual mechanisms of power in liberalism how does things actually get done well it's you know you have a bunch of elites you have a bunch of powerful people who have a bunch of control over society by various means and they you know do more or less the things that elites always do they try to coordinate with each other they try to increase their power they use overt and covert methods to steer the population this way and that and you know this works every regime is different but this is kind of like a similar story to to more or less everything yeah. And, and, and so like the big thing that I think defines liberalism is really the public story about democracy, rights, markets, open society, freedoms, that kind of thing. And then that 
holding up that story requires certain structural things to be kept in place. We do, in fact, have elections. They are a real thing. And then that has various implications for how the system actually works. But I don't think that's actually a really central feature. Right. Elections kind of, I mean, we've seen this with the Trump election, right? It's like, it's it's clear that, okay, there is sort of someone in the seat of power who isn't Trump and they didn't like Trump and Trump came in and kind of started messing their stuff up and he's not really able to get much done because all the people around him are very much influenced by like the, the incumbent elite networks. And is that what people say when they mention the deep state? Yeah. Yeah. People talk about the deep state. People talk about the oligarchs, et cetera. Right. Like people have all sorts of nasty names for it. I mean, this is actually one of the features of liberalism is that that's not supposed to be happening. Not that like, you know, a liberal regime doesn't have that, but that a liberal regime claims that it doesn't have that anyway. So, so Trump, Trump's election was not, not what people thought it was right. in terms of its actual effect. And, and this is actually, and it's like one of the starker examples of like, you know, if democracy was real, you would expect something, I think, quite different with Trump. Yeah. And what else is different between the story and the reality? Or the biggest difference? Yeah, so big differences between the story and the reality. So obviously, like I mentioned, there's actually an elite. They actually steer society through a bunch of mechanisms and and institutions. You know, one of the things you really, you never hear about in public, but if you actually start following the money, so to speak, on all the like, you know, grassroots cultural changes that we get, you trace it back, you get to things like the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, etc., staffed by like a particular crowd of people from the Ivy Leagues very much coordinated with a broader elite consensus. You know, all these people, they go to the same parties. They all have this very, um, like there is this network of power. Even I mean, things like use these institutions, even to, the grassroots things you'd imagine, like black lives matter or, or occupy or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to comment on any particular case, but like in the vast majority of cases, when you look into it, it's like, okay, who's actually funding this? Who's enabling it? Like, why are the police standing down instead of arresting people? Why is the, press giving them coverage instead of black uh, like instead of just you know doing a blackout why do they have money where did they get these logistical resources you look into those kind of threads and it's like always oh look that came from some elite power right so when you say elites run things are elites in the press are they working nonprofits as you just mentioned are they at facebook or you know well, what, what type of elites are we talking about I, we're, we're talking about like Everyone. So, so more or less in any society, you have some small minority of people who basically have all the power. Power meaning the ability to actually affect outcomes. Um, you know, they decide, you know, they, they can actually choose if things go this way or that. And those people, they tend to ally with each other because obviously you want to be not working at cross purposes. You can accomplish more together, et cetera. So you get this concentration of power among a particular crowd. And, and they're just going to be everywhere because anything that's actually a source of power, there will be a bunch of people in there actually operating it. And then they will be coordinating with the people in the other sort of power verticals. So, yeah, media, finance, universities, like VC, even uh, like everything that everything that like has a large impact on society. There's going to be a bunch of powerful people there who are at the top of that pyramid. They're going to be uh, finding ways to coordinate with the other people at the tops of other pyramids. And that's just kind of in any society that's like your elite. Isn't this what we'd expect from a representative democracy or republic? I think it's totally orthogonal to the republic thing. I think it's it's a feature of sort of any society that has like 
functional structure within it, right? There's going to be people who are in this very influential positions at the tops of these things. Um, I think a key fact about it is that those people are not actually elected uh, or largely they're not elected. Some of them, like some of the democratic power is also, you know, senators, congressmen, presidents, etc., can also be power players, can be elites and so on. But there's this large superstructure of power in society that isn't really elected. It isn't even formally part of the state, even though like to get your analysis straight, you would actually want to think about that at least as an informal state, because it is in fact, this kind of network of institutions collaborating together with a vision of society that they're kind of, you know, they are in fact governing. Martin Gurry wrote this book before Trump called the revolt of the public you know, portending what's, uh, what's, uh, what was about to happen with, with Trump and Brexit. So what, what is sort of the state of, of elites today with it within society and, and what should it be in your opinion for a functional society? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd love to know more about this topic. Like I'm, I'm not going to claim to be like the, the end all expert, right. But it, it's like, it looks to me like there is a crisis of knowing what to do, knowing how to run society and having confidence in any particular thing and i think there's a lot of infighting right now like a lot of institutional decay inability to get things done the fact that they couldn't stop trump for example like that that actually is a symptom of of a weakness in the system and like you you look at the the again like i said sort of you have this post-war era where you get these guys like vannevar bush very closely coordinated with a bunch of other very powerful people and they find some smart smart young guys and they can just throw them into whatever problems they want and those problems get solved it's like that's a very coordinated functional elite it creates a very optimistic society um and i think more recently we've unfortunately we don't have that so the in terms of like how it should be i think so a lot of people look at this thing um especially within kind of like the liberal frame of mind they look at you know, the existence of elites and like, wait, that's not supposed to happen. We're like, we're supposed to be democratic. Like we're, we're, we're not supposed to have these like unaccountable power players just kind of actually governing society, whether we like it or not. Um, so people take sort of a negative view of it. I think, you know, libertarians aren't going to like me on this, but like, I I think death and taxes are inevitable. You know, there's, there's a few things you can be assured of in, in the universe. And I think, you know, generalizing from taxes, basically there are going to be people who are more powerful than you who are extracting rents from you. And, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to like it. It is in fact there though. And I think we have to kind of like find ways to incorporate that into our worldview in a more positive way. Just like, okay, well, how can we make that work for us? There's going to be powerful people. How do we make them work for us? Or how do we make them do things that we can believe in? And I think one of the big things there is like, okay, how do we stop having such an adversarial relationship, like both among the elite and between the rest of the population and the elite? And how should they look at society? How should the elite look at society? How should they look at themselves? All these big questions of like, this is the question of like, what is the mindset of a responsible governing class? How should they think about themselves? How should they organize themselves? And I think once you have like a much more overt self-consciousness in that class. I, I think, you know, we had our, our article on Palladium about uh, the problem at Yale, right? Yeah. You know, people were thinking, oh, there's this free speech problem. We kind of diagnosed it as, well, the problem is actually that the elite isn't really taking responsibility for their situation. And they're not really thinking of themselves as the actual governing class with the responsibility to govern. And I think if you do develop that mindset, the system ends up looking quite different. And I think... It, 
I think you could get something much more positive there yeah. if, if people, it's like there is this job to do, right, of right. governance. Yeah. And there are these powerful people who are basically doing it, whether you like it or not. Right. Well, okay, let's, let's find ways to give them tools to do it better. Right. One bug we seem to have around this concept of elite versus not elite is we, we sort of equate liberty with equality and justice or, or conflate them. And, and often the more liberty you have, the more inequality and perceived in, injustice. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a sort of old, old idea that, yeah, if, if people are free, then they're not going to be equal because some people are going to make bad choices and some people are going to make good choices and those good choices are going to, you know, result in having more and being more popular and whatever it is that they end up with. Yeah. I mean, on the question of liberty or put differently, if, if there's like some people might say, Oh, the only reason there's elite is because we're not free as because we don't have liberty. If we really had liberty, there'd be no elite because yeah. I mean, some people will take that view. I don't think that's a necessarily reasonable view. Again, I think like the very nature of power is such that it ends up being exclusive. Like yeah. if, if you have, if let's say there's two, two sort of people in society who have a lot of power and you know, like you and me, like, yeah. and I've got a little bit, Maybe, maybe like 50% more power than you. Well, you know, we're going to be kind of having a little face off here. We're going to be having a little bit of a civil war. It's going to be a bit messy until the bigger power player is going to kind of chip away at and destroy the smaller power player. And then you're going to get more or less a single pole of, of power in society. Or we find a way to work together. And again, we become a single pole. And, and so I think you always get this effect of like the way power works is it tends towards monopoly. And to be clear, there could be meritocratic elite and non-meritocratic elite. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there's, and so there's a couple of interesting yeah. concepts there. So you mentioned liberty, you mentioned meritocracy, right? And and these are like merit. What What is merit? Is is that like whoever's smartest? Uh, why that? Like, is it whoever's going to govern the best? Okay, that's an interesting idea. Well, how do you get them there? Yeah, so so I, I sort of prefer not to think in terms of meritocracy because I, I think it's very difficult to have come to any kind of objective definition of like merit. And then even if you had an objective definition, you you can't implement that without a bunch of power. And once you have a bunch of power, well, why not just use the power directly? You could say things are more merit-based or less merit. Like clearly, you know, when your son is born into something that's less merit-based than. Yeah. So you can, you can have things, you can have elites where, where like they will actively recruit um, the competent, and sort of like loyal, trustworthy people from the population into their ranks. Like Obama and, seems more meritocratic than and, like George and, Bush. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and kick kick people out who like aren't competent or like just there because of whatever reason. I, I, I don't really want to get into like really examining that concept, but like there's a lot of stuff to peel apart yeah. there, uh, in, especially even, even in terms of stuff like heredity. Yeah. Like, okay, well, if I can't train my son to secede me like in what structural important way or like is that fully different from me just like having myself uh, like I get in there and then I sort of people sort of understand that I have an individual right to like keep my position but not like a transferable right and and the sort of like there's actually interesting questions there of like well how what logic actually justifies that and then back to liberty like obviously you can't do anything liberty for what 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 can you do and and so like what are the actual bounds of your behavior and i think an important part of society again like i characterize liberalism as kind of a 
narrative about society rather than an actual concrete state of society, I think we're a lot less free than the, the narrative claims. We actually do have very tight bounds of behavior. You know, at the very least, there's, you've got all your politeness norms, your fashion norms, your, um, I'm not even talking about stuff like laws. Laws are generally pretty, pretty permissive compared to the social rules, the political rules, the ideological rules that any society in fact does have and that we all kind of follow very yeah. meticulously. So like freedom is always defined within these very tight boundaries in society. Yeah. And then, so it's like, okay, well, what does the concept actually mean? And like, is it better to have like more freedom over here or like less freedom over there? Well, what if, what if the place, what if the, like, if the alternate bound set with like less total freedom was a better set of choices available to yeah. you or something like that. Right. Like, so you can again, examine these concepts and, and I think, start poking a lot of holes in these things. If you really start to think about them, this is why I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of like the liberal narrative is because like when you really start to dig into this stuff, uh, a lot of it sort of starts to fall apart and it's like, oh, wait, what, what did any of this actually mean? Yeah. Right. And yeah. And so we have this big question of like, okay, well we are having this crisis in society, you know, of, of the elite kind of coming apart in a way or like somehow the thing is not working properly. And somehow that seems connected to a lot of our like fundamental motivated beliefs about society in particular, the the liberal narrative. And we need to be thinking outside of that to like find the solutions in my opinion. And it seems to have lost some faith uh, in the Obama uh, presidency because that was supposed to be a you know technocratic dream, right? Yeah. Well, it was this like great dream. It's like, Oh yeah. Change hope. Right. And, and, and Obama bring, you know, you himself know, like, such an intellectual oh, bringing all the right people yeah, and and yet still like barely able to yeah, implement the healthcare. I yeah. mean, like, and and then you know, <laughs> yeah, what, what was it like a, a billion dollars for a website or something? And and like they didn't they didn't actually get us healthcare because like it, it was just too much bureaucracy to wade through. Yeah, so so we we're in like this kind of tricky state, and there's a bunch of we're being held back by something. It's unclear exactly yeah. what. Right. Or like, it's probably something that we regard as sacred and then like, okay, so which sacred cow do we have to kill? Right. And, and like, this is this very difficult problem because like even talking about that is going to be a very contentious right. thing. Totally. So before getting into, I was not working some more quick historical context. You mentioned 1973 on had increasing marketization, privatization, as well as increasing polarization. Talk more about those and, and where did those come from? How did they manifest? So in 1973 itself is actually the, this really interesting thing. Uh, for years, you know, I've been looking, looking at a lot of these problems, like, okay, what's actually going on in society? What's going wrong? When did it go wrong? Like, how well is it working? How could we do better? These kind of things. So a lot of that is, you know, you go and try to be quantitative. You try to go and look at the graphs, like, all right, well, let's see, like steel production in the U.S. over time or like electricity production or like marriage rates or whatever whatever kind of numbers you want to track, you look at it and like kept coming up over and over and over this sharp transition point at 1973. I was like, okay, what, what is going on here? Right. And it's like, you know, the end of Apollo, uh, it really got shut down there. It was the Nixon presidency, Watergate, the oil crisis, the end of the gold standard. Um, you just had the revolutions of the sixties, like the, the social revolution, and so you've got all this stuff kind of manifesting right around that time. And I, 
I found that like super interesting. It's like, okay, there was this huge event that happened that we like don't talk about. Something drastically changed in our society and we don't talk about it much. It's like we don't have a narrative of this. As for like what happened after, I mean, people have characterized it, I guess, as like neoliberalism. So it's this thing. I would really characterize it as like the center, uh, like the, the state as such, and, or like the center, or like the coordinated elite kind of shut down a bunch of their internal machinery or maybe like Nixon shut it down or whatever. I, it's hard to characterize exactly what happened. Though. I don't understand it. Right. But, but it looks to me like a bunch of the stuff actually keeping the thing going and driving development and so on just kind of got shut down. And like, we went into a holding pattern of like, okay, we don't know how to operate a government anymore. So we're just going to like, let the companies do it. And then polarization is like, we don't know how to give people an optimistic unifying narrative anymore. So it's just like over time, kind of like various grifters pull people apart. Right. And we don't know why that shutdown happened. I don't. I mean, there's, there's many narratives you can come up with. I, one of my favorite narratives is just like, well, there's two big, two big things that I have that are like bold hypotheses. I don't know if these are right. One of them is all the people trained before the war retired around that time. And so like, they somehow failed the succession problem. You know, the succession problem is like, can you actually replace yourself with someone who is competent enough to continue the job? And, you know, you look at Fund Brown, you look at Mueller, you look at Kelly, like uh, Kelly Johnson, these guys who are really the like big brains behind the like technical development that was happening at that time. Um, So that's, that's uh, two of those guys are NASA. The other one is Lockheed. Skunk works. And those guys are all kind of retiring around this time. The people who replace them, you know, the, well, the replacement is like what we see in the shuttle program. And then like, I think Feynman characterizes the shuttle program pretty well, just in terms of like the managers being completely disconnected from the engineers, the, the, the management process being this hyper bureaucratic, very risk averse thing that somehow actually makes more risk. So there's that, that narrative is like, we just kind of failed the succession there, the succession problem on like actually replacing these guys who are actually driving development. And then another one is just that like a lot of the stuff that we were doing at that time is stuff that involves a bunch of things that aren't really supposed to be happening under liberalism. And like the way FDR kind of rebooted the country is like very much not liberal like served four terms hyper centralized executive like you know they went to war despite the american people not wanting it like this huge total war it was like a different kind of regime again and it had a liberal narrative but like in terms of actual things that were happening it was a bunch of stuff that like wasn't supposed to happen and i think just like you know you have some big development run as a result of kind of like repeated invocation of what I call the national security exception to liberalism, right? It's like, okay, the economy had just collapsed. We had a war to fight. The cold war was really breathing down our necks. And like those, those three big things in sequence basically like kept the system focused on, okay, let's make sure the thing is working really well and make sure we're like getting the job done and not worry too much about internal, like ideological consistency And then I think at some point you get towards a point of relative comfort where like 
The Cold War is not won, but it's relatively contained. There's no more like huge active shooting war to fight. The economy's been working really well. Everyone's kind of optimistic on that. People no longer feel this, this really tight need to be doing this like hyper development kind of thing that was happening through, yeah. the, through the previous 30 years. And then I think it's just like the system gets to that point and it's like, okay, well, okay, let's, let's get the ideological stuff back in order. And I think that stuff kind of, we don't know how to do that under liberalism in a liberal way. Right. Yeah. And then, so I think that's sort of the other narrative I have is like, okay, well, what if we just shut it down because we no longer really needed it and it's not really justifiable right. under our public belief system. And what was the public belief system before liberalism? Was I mean, if you trace it back it? far enough, it's like Christianity, yeah. right? And so liberalism is post-World War II. What? No. So I'm, there's like the post-World War II liberal order, but then there's liberalism as, as like, you know, like John Locke. Right. I mean, the, when, when did it sort of define, uh, you know, the way we had to do policy? The way we had to do which? Policy or set up our institutions. It wasn't, I'm not saying that liberalism was new at that time. I'm saying that like, there was no longer such a pressing need that we could ignore the ideological contradiction. Um, like America has been liberal since the beginning. And like, there's been a series of like parts, places where it's like, we realize, oh, actually that's a big ideological contradiction. We have to fix that. Right. Like, you know, and the civil war is another one of these things. And like, you know, both the motivation of the civil war and the actual fighting of the civil war, like liberal societies don't like kill millions of their own people by having this huge war. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's like kind of, if I had to narrativize the kind of 1973 situation. What is the uh, relationship between sort of liberalism and capitalism? And is the end state, some people say the end state for liberalism is just communism. Like you just keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people claim that, uh, you know, the end state of democracy is communism. Uh, you know, like some of the commies, the, the more, uh, the more smug communists will, will claim such things and, and the more like hysterical reactionaries will claim such things. I don't know what the relationship is. I have a few kind of ideas on this, on this topic. So on the one hand, corporations are this like really weird anomaly within liberalism. Like liberalism is generally about the individual and the state, right? This, the individual elects the representatives of the state and otherwise like membership organizations that have significant demands on their people are not something that we like and not something that really fits into the ontology. And then you have these, for some reason, really powerful kind of collective entities of corporations. And it's like this this kind of weird, weird ideological thing going on. And I I suspect it's like partially just, it's an exception, right? It's like, well, corporations are actually really, really useful. And so we kind of allow it to exist under that exception. And capitalism is kind of like too wide of a thing to define. But if we talk about just the corporation, but then on the other hand, there's this narrative of the corporation. It's like, okay, it's an artificial person that is owned by other people and then employs people for money. And so like all of these relationships can kind of be shoehorned into liberalism and it's okay. So there's that part of it. It's like, does capitalism and liberalism actually get along very well? I think they can. I think they can, despite some tensions. And then there's the question of like, okay, well, what does capitalism mean politically? I like to define capitalism as two different things or like two different types of capitalism, two different ways of interpreting it. Way number one is like, okay, you have corporations, you have companies, you have a free market, 
you have competition, uh, you know, market-based competition, you have financialization, et cetera. And that's kind of how you keep your, the, the sort of like vast logistical apparatus of your economy running. And that's how you produce the stuff. And that's how you deliver the goods and so on. As you use this big sort of soup of corporations and, and we call that capitalism. That's one model. And on that model, like the United States is sort of capitalist, China's sort of capitalist, Everyone's kind of sort of capitalist, except really weird socialist economies and stuff. And then there's this other model of capitalism, which is, I think, what the Marxists kind of criticize more, which is where you take the interpretation that, like, capital is not just this useful thing that we deploy in society, but is, like, sovereign, has its own rights, doesn't report to the government, it can, in fact, use its free speech rights to influence the government, to lobby the government, to buy buy influence and that's where we're getting into like the crony capitalism the lobbying yeah. the the like capitalist class yeah. capitalist bourgeoisie kind of exerting yeah. the the dominant force in society that's a whole other can of worms right. and i think that's getting into more like it's in some ways just the actual nature of liberalism like the right. it, like under all the propaganda you do just have this kind of like quasi capitalist bourgeoisie running things um through various institutions and through various things like like the the foundations you know they're they're fairly thoroughly like if you had to like pin them to one ideological system or other they're fairly thoroughly capitalist not in their intent but just in their structure yeah. it's like okay rockefeller gets rich ford gets rich carnegie gets rich they give their money to a charitable foundation right. they do private philanthropy of course it ends up being this like semi-official arm of the state but we don't talk about that part yeah and so there's, there's like that kind of capitalism and that's like seems to be compatible with liberalism to the extent that like liberalism can ever be compatible with a real regime on the other hand i actually don't think it's a very good way to run a government to have like a bunch of private actors trying to like influence each other and influence the formal mechanisms i think the like if we had to pin it down to like a particular technical criticism it would be that the people making those decisions because of their entanglement with a private interest, like a, a particular interest, you know, like I have my Walmart or my Lockheed or whatever. And, and like, and then it's kind of defining their position with respect to that private interest, their interest in influencing the government isn't going to be the thing that's holistically good, but the thing that's good for them. Yeah. And I think you do want the government thinking more like, what's holistically good and obviously no one's going to be like oh i'm going to think about what's good for everybody like everyone kind of thinks what's good for them but you can have a major difference between a class that defines itself as owning this particular empire within society versus a class that defines itself as we own the entirety of society because we're the ruling class and if you have a ruling class that hopefully thinks about it itself in that way in a responsible way and is like yeah. trying to do its job well but if you have a class that's actually trying to think about well how do you run this thing that we own this this we've got this state we've got this society we can do whatever we want well how do we do it well right that i think can get you potentially a better outcome i mean obviously the details are like how do we get there from here what does that look like like again i think it's kind of a process of like well you already have that Let's give them better yeah. tools and of self-conception and, and right. et cetera. And before getting to those better tools, one, one objection I'm sure you've heard is 
people say, hey, what about just pure democracy? We haven't tried it really. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, so the, 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 the sort of like refutation of pure democracy, uh, well, depending on what you mean. So you can mean like pure presidential democracy where it's like the people elect the demagogue and the demagogue rules with an iron fist. I, I think that's like the outcome. Basically. But that is one version. Another is, uh, hey, uh, liquid democracy, you know, these sort of new tools of democracy that allow people to dire- have direct, you know, uh, votes yeah, yeah. on specific policies. Yeah, so there's like direct democracy. And then I think. I think, again, like the nature of power is such that you're going to get a small number of people in the position of telling the public which things are the right things to vote for, or you're going to get a small number of people like actually motivated enough to read all the documents to know like whether it's yeah. this or that, the the like bills on the table. Like I'm, I'm trying to like uh, – this, this is my like – if you think about it sort of like from a computer security perspective, like how is this defeated? How is this mechanism defeated? You know, like you can imagine the bills on the table being like obfuscated in such a way that like only people who are actually reading carefully are going to know which is their thing. And like, there's all kinds of ways where that isn't going to work quite how people imagine. And, and I, so I'm not going to like, you know, pin down to one particular thing that I would expect to happen, but as a general law, I think power exists and it finds ways to exist and it will find ways to like run society. And so the real question is not uh, like, how do we get rid of power, but rather, okay, given that power exists, how do we organize that power? How do we use it better? Yeah. So I, I, I would say, I mean, maybe this is a heretical position, but like, I, I just don't think that these like direct democracy things are actually going to work. Switzerland is this interesting anomaly to this view, right? It's like they do seem to have this really strong, actual, something like a democracy. And, you know, they have a lot of these kind of direct democracy mechanisms, a lot of localism, etc. Whatever it is they're doing seems to be working for them. They, they're one of the like most sovereign European nations. But again, like yeah. democracy, liberalism, etc. tend to be just a narrative pasted over something else. So like what's actually going on there? I don't know. Right. Maybe it's like the same old oligarch, like banking and mercenary oligarchy that Switzerland right. has always been. Right. And, and to the counter of, hey, but what if we actually executed it, uh, executed what the narrative says? Do you say that it's not something we would want or it's just impossible to? I, I would do? say, first of all, that it's kind of impossible. Second of all, if you actually do it, I think the people are not a responsible ruling class and will, in fact, do crazy things and <laughs> like you will get like when democracy is real it like i think it will very quickly devolve into civil war right. yeah that that, just, that would be like just go idea. to twitter <laughs> right i mean or yeah or like you know try to actually run a important collective venture on democracy it's like at best, you end up with some really respected person who just like takes charge of the problem and tells everyone what needs to happen. And everyone's like, yes, I vote for that. Uh, um, and then you've got basically like an old folk king kind of situation. It's like, okay, well, that's semi-democratic, but it's also completely different. Right. What's the biggest evidence for why the liberal order is not working and why it's unsustainable? As in uh, one counter could be, isn't it just a lull? And maybe just a few yeah, lawyers yeah, will mean, get back to it. So, So there's this like sort of, optimistic or disturbing narrative depending on like which perspective you're coming from that one might put forward which is well yeah liberalism has a crisis occasionally like where things kind of get 
get off the rails. And then, you know, we pull the national security exception, reconstitute a real regime, rebuild society, and then go back to liberalism. And in that case, like, even if liberalism is fundamentally flawed, it kind of stays around because every time it's truly in trouble, it like decides to sort of stop being liberal for a little while and and it just enough to fix the thing. And that's like the kind of a, a more dystopian articulation of the end of history thesis and you know and and some people obviously are going to have a more positive framing of of that scenario i think that's plausible i don't know whether liberalism is going to like permanently fail what does look like is happening is we have a particular crisis that does seem to be very much linked to how we think about society and what we're kind of like willing to consider and not willing to consider and like how we're, how the story we're telling ourselves about how society works. And I think that crisis is like both internal and external. We have the internal crisis of like, things are not working that well. I think we could get a lot worse before we really had to deal with it. I mean, you say things are not working. Right. Well, you, do you mean economically? Do you mean polarization? Do you mean? Yeah, it's, it, it shows up everywhere, right? Like, I mean, you know, we're in San Francisco. We all know what's wrong in San Francisco. Generally in America, it's not always exactly the same thing, but like there's an awful lot of old paint. There's an awful lot of crumbling infrastructure. There's an awful lot of things that were built in the sixties that haven't been touched since then and like uh you might have the idea that something is wrong and then there's the external problem which is china china has done something very much not liberal um and they're very adamant that they're actually not capitalist they are communist and they they when you look closely i think they actually make a good case for a lot of this stuff you just have to understand it in a little bit of a different way um aren't they more capitalist than us in, in some ways so again, let's get back to like the two definitions of capitalism. There's capitalism as an economic mechanism in the service of society, and there's capitalism as an actual governing mechanism. And they are not capitalist in the governing mechanism sense. All their companies have like party members on the boards and the party members are in charge. The companies are all owned by the state formally. You know, Jack Ma, the big billionaire in China, founder of Alibaba and I think Alibaba. You know, his, his attitude is basically like, I am so grateful for the party to have given me the opportunity to fulfill this duty in society. Right. It's like, it's, it's a very different dynamic from, from like the Koch brothers who are like, yeah, get the government off my back. Right. Yeah. So, so I think China's not actually liberal. You know, you could say that they are operating within the, the worldview of the enlightenment, you know, within the Marxist tradition, et cetera. But. They're very different from us at the very least. They do things that are very illiberal. Um, I mean, certainly like the, what effectively look like concentration camps right. in Western China, all this stuff that like definitely not our yeah. way of doing things. Would Marxists have seen China and say, Hey, that's closer than what I imagined to the U S, but still dystopia or Hey, you've fulfilled a bunch. Like what would he, I, that's hard to say, right? Like the thing is, it's always hard to, like I, I won't make the claim that like China's doing what Marx intended. Perhaps they're more close to Lenin, but in, within the communist kind of um, intellectual tradition, like Lenin was really the guy who who broke a lot of Marxist models. Like Marx was like spontaneous revolution of the proletariat. Lenin said, "No, that's not going to happen. The economists are just sitting around wanking, waiting for it to happen. We need to actually assemble a, 
a cadre, yeah. like a party, the revolutionary party, right? And then Mao did that in China. The the Chinese communists are operating in that tradition. Anyways, back to the point is like China is very different from us and ideologically very different. Yeah. And their system is working extremely well right now. Um, we just published an article on this, made a lot of people mad because we were like, hey, look, like you complacent American, like yeah. these people are winning. Let's go look at it. What are they doing? Is any of it actually stuff that they're doing right, right. that we're not doing? We need to like get our stuff together um, to catch up or, yeah. or we're going to get screwed. And anyways, that's kind of like one of the things I want people to like take away from looking at China. Yeah. And so this is amazing. What specifically can, can we learn or should we adopt? I don't know if it comes down to like immediate specific lessons, but just like breaking the complacency, right? Like nuke the American ego of like, oh yeah, we're so exceptional. We're the best. We can just like dick around all the time and it somehow works out for us. Like, (laughs) no, like they're winning. They're going to win. They have more people than us. They have a bigger economy than us. They have a better government than us in terms of like actually executing on things, perhaps not better in terms of uh, achieving any kind of good life or in, in some abstract sense, but even in that largely getting much better, faster. And, and there's a lot of people in the U S who are like not doing well. Yeah. And so like China is this big external forcing factor on our system, which is like coming in almost directly refuting a lot of our claims, which is like liberalism leads to prosperity. There is no route to prosperity except for liberalism. Prosperity leads to liberalism. You know, there's a bunch of claims about the the like interdependence between prosperity and liberalism. And China just like directly refutes that and then threatens us with this this existential situation, which is like, well, they're gonna take our empire away and take over the world. Yeah. Um and and we better have a response to that or we're just gonna turn into a backwater. Or we're gonna get a war or you know, whatever. The the point is it's this external forcing factor on on our sort of self-examination yeah and and so that's why like i think right now we have this you know some people will call it a crisis some people will call it a big opportunity to kind of go back and rethink yeah. well if even if it's not the end of liberalism we're going to be getting out of this current crisis somehow because we're going to be forced to we're going to have to reconstitute a real government a real elite that like is thinking and about things in a different way well what's that going to look like and what are the big questions that need to be asked what are the big questions that need to be answered and that's so it's like okay there's this big opportunity let's let's look at that question and that's really like kind of what we're trying to do with palladium right? right is okay let's look around the world and just you know put on our responsible ruling ruling class hat and be like How does the world look if you're a responsible ruling class trying to develop a perspective that allows you to make your country better and, and you're not, you're not necessarily stuck to any particular ideological paradigm. Um, First principles. Yeah. So, and this is what we call governance futurism. It's like, okay, what's actually happening? Where's it all going? And what are the big insights from outside of our paradigm that we need to understand? What are the big problems in our paradigm? Because like, we're forced by this crisis to yeah. to actually examine our own paradigm and be like, okay, we can't just stick with this thing anymore. We do have to challenge it. We right. do have to look outside of it. Um, and, and so that that's the big project that we're doing. Yeah, with let's things. get into into all those things. Maybe starting with one of the main questions you think we need to ask in the way that we, we're not asking right now is or not answering is what's the purpose in society? What's the purpose of society? Yeah, and and this is a this is like comes back to what I think 
ultimately like the big problem in liberalism is the big problem that keeps it what it is is that we're just it's this way of not answering the question of what are we here for what are we trying to do what is how does human nature work how does society work what is the purpose of society what is the purpose of man in society and i think those are really important questions that historically everyone has been extremely concerned with and then liberalism is the sort of this idea that those questions don't matter we don't have to answer them we'll just like create peace let's create internal peace and let's just like work out our individual goods and then that will kind of that will be okay and i think another feature of liberalism is that when you get kind of expressions within society of someone come along with this really bold purpose, this like ordering conception of human life, usually some kind of like crazy religious movement or a political movement that's an illiberal political movement, you know, like communism, fascism, etc. Liberalism is going to look at those things and be like, oh man, that's really scary because last time we had people running around with that kind of stuff, it was just war. Yeah. Uh, people go really nuts about that stuff. And so there's this, you know, in some ways legitimate fear of like, well, if we're actually looking at those questions people are going to have really big disagreements and they're going to really care about them and we're going to start killing each other again and so liberalism is like okay let's just obscure all that let's let's obscure that whole question make it go away and also if people notice that society is run by power people are going to start asking well you know power is a means what's the end uh where are we going with it what are we doing with it and so we'll obscure power too, right? And that's where we get kind of this idea of the open society, the yeah. idea of freedom, or at least like the reason that those things keep getting re-promoted re is like to to put power away. Postmodernism is interesting actually, or like more broadly kind of some of the stuff happening in the academic discourse in postmodernism and I mean, critical theory and all that. Like I don't necessarily agree with a lot of that stuff, but there's this really interesting thing going on where they are, which is that they actually do question the existence of power and they actually will point it out and be like, hey, look, this is power. Power is operating here. Someone is getting oppressed. There's a who and there's a whom. And like mostly liberalism is like gentleman's agreement not got to say it. that kind of thing. Right. Got it. But, you know, so it's very interesting to go and actually study what power is really doing. But the the sort of postmodern critical theorist types, I, I don't know how to like characterize them really well, but, but they seem to have very tight bounds on what they're allowed to look at. It's like, okay, you can examine these really interesting questions, but only in this limited domain of like essentially being able, essentially turning it into identity politics, never into any kind of bigger question about like, what's society for? What are we doing with all this power, et cetera? More like this guy's getting squished by that guy. How do we critique that? And like, use that as a as sort of a let's flip that around make it yeah. make it go the other way or whatever yeah. and so it ends up by being so proscribed ends up just being another recuperated yeah. part of yeah. kind of the liberal power structure right so what are sample answers to the question of what's the purpose for society? yeah yeah so, so china says so, it's so getting, state, right? getting so. back getting back to like this big question of like okay let me let me get back to sort of a little bit more on motivating the question. So liberalism kind of just refuses to answer the question. And I think we have a lot of problems with that because it means we're just systematically not looking at a bunch of really important stuff. And so I think we do ultimately have to answer that question, ideally in a way that doesn't involve us all killing each other or whatever the fear is, right? And so I think 
we need some responsible investigation of that question. And so then the question is like, okay, well, what does an answer look like? So Christianity and uh, sort of historical European thought has been, you know, the idea is you want to live the good life. You want to become virtuous. You want to be unified with God. Um, of course, you have this problem of sin, therefore you need Christ, blah, blah, blah. Like they've, they've got their whole narrative, right? And, and they had an answer to this question. It had its problems, which is why it's kind of no longer driving things. It, it, it failed to deal with certain problems of modernity. I, I don't know exactly how to characterize that, but they had an answer. It somehow failed. Islam, a little different in its approach, also says, your purpose is, well, submission to the will of God. There's this like all-powerful ordering will to the universe who created you for some purpose. You should submit to that purpose and follow, you know, the word of the prophet, which is the word of God. And, and not only should you do that, you should create a political state that is about that and subject the entire world to it. Then you've got stuff like communism. Communism says, well, there's this kind of materialistic, flourishing end state that we can imagine for humanity where we all want to achieve somewhere where the state has withered away and we're all just living in equality and harmony and we've got all our material needs met and so we have no longer any contentious desire no longer any reason to fight and we're all just kind of getting along so, yeah so communism interestingly like does actually attempt to answer the question i think their answer doesn't work but it's there liberalism kind of like it says well let, let's all just kind of like vote on it and have this parliament where everyone's somehow getting along in this open society but never quite specifying what the thing actually is and so what kind of answer might come next one of the questions i like to ask that gets my brain going on this is Imagine you were a society that was fully internally unified, like you'd somehow achieved internal harmony so that everyone was getting along and able to operate on unified purpose. We see this like this is not a sociologically impossible thing. We see this happening in certain startups, certain communities where people will like really strongly believe in some shared mission um, and some shared system of organization whereby they are actually able to act more or less as a unit or and, and work primarily on collective great things, you know, as well as, of course, meeting their individual needs. So imagine you were a society that had somehow achieved that. What would you want to do? What becomes the purpose of your life? And then so the answer for me is like, well, let's let's do science. Let's study the universe. Let's expand. Let's explore. Let's create great works of beauty. Let's do great contemplation in terms of more self-understanding, more kind of unification with, you know, what you might call the will of God or just like sound philosophy or internal ordering or whatever. Like there's various, various ways to define what this thing is, but it's somehow like this expansionary self-ordering, exploratory, curious kind of drive that, that feels fairly fundamental to life. Now, this is just my thought experiment, something that kind of like motivates my thoughts in the area. I don't know if there's anything like an answer there. I suspect there might be some useful things to find there. But I think like that thought experiment kind of orders it well for me. It's like, okay, well, you have two problems. 
One is let's achieve internal order so that as a society, we are actually getting along with each other and well-organized and able to undertake collective acts. And then the other thing is, well, in terms of what we actually want to do with that, well, there's all kinds of stuff we could do. And it's not that hard to figure out what you would want to do once you have sort of the idea that that's just that you can just go and do that, like just go and explore and expand and et cetera. Now, I don't know if that actually works as an answer, but like I find that kind of a useful prompt at the very least. Yeah, I I believe very strongly in like the power of what I guess people call philosophy, which is actually examining your own concepts, examining your own motivations, uh, working out the answers to the key philosophical problems that are actually kind of blocking up your internal mental order. And I think this, I think that activity is very closely related to that activity also applied to society as a whole. That Like there's this society wide problem of like, well, we've got various things people care about, things people are working on structures that fulfill useful purposes. And we've got various contradictions between those things. And we need to like work out how to negotiate those contradictions into some synthesis whereby we're able to like get all the stuff working together harmoniously. And I think it's a really useful frame for thinking about society. And that's, that's partially why, like when we launched Palladium, we've kind of framed the thing as, well, what if we could synthesize our way out of this problem instead of having to like pick yet another ideology? What if we could put things together and just make things work together and, and have it therefore not be so particular? Yeah. You know, it seems that there's this idea that sort of, or a trend where a meme takes uh, gets so much power that you can no longer attack the meme. You know, communism being a huge like, of course I'm not, uh, or uh, like I guess a giant. Like, of course I'm still communist. Like, uh, the meme has so much power, you can't counteract the meme. What you have to do is co-op the meme and redefine it. Yes, yeah, and and this comes into like, okay, given that you disagree with society, which is often the case, how do you responsibly undertake an effort to do something about that? Yeah. So a little bit of background there. I would claim that all societies have a dominant narrative that defines what they are, what they're doing, what people believe in, what are the right things and what are the wrong things. And that you cannot really contradict that stuff in public, or at least not usually and not in any unthinking way. You know, American society, despite claims to being an open society, is no different. And this is where you get into like, you know, is free speech real? Is free speech ever real? Again, I think our actions are all very carefully proscribed and prescribed. And we we sort of exist within a small bubble of acceptability. And you can kind of think outside of that bubble in private. But even there, you're so much limited by the concepts that you've been given by society, um, by the logistical difficulty of actually assembling more people to think with you on a hard problem. Um, etc. So you are kind of stuck within the, the fact that you live in a society that has an orthodoxy yeah. and it demands that you accept that orthodoxy and not contradict that orthodoxy. But as is the case in any imperfect world, that orthodoxy is wrong. Yeah. Um, so what do we do about that? And so this is one of the central concepts of palladium is sort of how we relate to this, which is the concept of responsibility. Like let's approach everything like responsibly. What if we were responsible for the outcome? What if we actually had to make sure it was had a good outcome? How do you speak in public in a way that actually produces a good outcome and also produces the change you want? Because 
the obvious ways of doing it, like, oh, I'm going to loudly blare my contradictory social thought. Well, that actually has a lot of problems because social thought is not inconsequential. It is extremely consequential for society in terms of how things work. Our entire social order is based on the current orthodoxy. If you just go around contradicting that orthodoxy, it's like going around in a chemistry lab with a sledgehammer and smashing stuff. It's, it's a very antisocial thing to do. And yet it's all set up wrong. So somehow you have to, it does have to be changed, but not with a sledgehammer, right? So you can't, you shouldn't just speak directly against society's narrative, but you have to figure out ways to kind of say, okay, what's actually going on here? What are we trying to do? What are the truths that society has? What are the truths that I want to integrate into that? How can I redefine things, move things around, co-opt things, um, shed light on things in a positive way that like updates it? So it's like, oh, we had this flaw. The true expression of what we were doing is actually includes this other insight, right? And And the problem of how to do that and how to support that as a society, I think is very important. And that's again, like within the, liberal paradigm of how you do society that's just not on the radar in liberalism when you disagree with society well you protest you use your free speech you write letters to the editor you publish in magazines and you know somehow that results in if your idea is good and is accepted by the marketplace of ideas then you know it gets incorporated into how people think about things and we don't think too hard about the set of ideas accepted by society as an actual functional order that is producing goods. We don't think too hard about the process by which the thing actually becomes part of society. Again, coming back to the elites exerting a huge influence on things. Well, the ideas don't necessarily come from them. Uh, you know, you come with your big new idea and someone either funds your little nonprofit and gets everyone out of the way so that you can expand and grow and become right. part of the order or they crush you. And yeah. a lot of the times what they do is they crush you. All, all that like actual background machinery of how the thing has changed, which is essentially this process of pure power is all obscured yeah. under liberalism. And, and therefore we don't offer, we don't have a public narrative of like, here's how you should do it. Like, you know, responsibly admonishing someone who is your superior uh, like that you're not supposed to have superiors in a political sense. Yeah. And I think that's like a, a big problem because it, it is a real problem that we have to solve, which is we have an orthodoxy. It is important to maintain that orthodoxy because it's holding up society. And yet that orthodoxy is wrong and has to get fixed. How do we approach fixing it in a pro-social responsible way? I want more resources on that topic. Yeah. I don't have them immediately, yeah. but like I want people Would to, you say that to do that. That's what China did. A while ago, they anyways. China. What China did was violent revolution, right? What Mao did was violent revolution. Yeah, but after Mao, I, um, yeah. So, so nowadays, I think I don't know if they have like tools in this area any more than we do. In China, they do have the idea that like at least they're going to admit that there are certain topics you do not contradict the party on, yeah. and you do not contradict the legitimacy of the party. And you do get projects in China, some of which are relatively successful. We published an article on the Confucian school in China, the specifically the like pro-state, pro-party Confucian school, which is where these people, Confucian scholars, taking Confucius's work 
uh, and, and his students, obviously, and trying to integrate that into like the modern legitimacy of the Chinese state. They're taking it very much, you know, insofar as you can do a responsible thing in, in a regime like in China, I, I think they're doing a decent job at like, okay, well, we're loyal to the party. We don't contradict the party. And yet we have this thing that we think the party should, here's this thing that we wish to offer to the party, this intellectual tool of Confucian, Confucian, uh, thought. So I don't know that they're using any particular tricks or affordances provided by the Chinese system that we don't have, but it's just an example of someone kind of doing that in yeah. China. Um, and I think success, like when things successfully happen in the West, they're done under that pattern of yeah. like thinking about, okay, we're not going to contradict the actual dominant narratives, but we are going to offer an update in a way that is agreeable to the ruling class because it articulates their interests in a new and better way. And that's something like, I, I think there should be better tools for that because I think we should be able to update society without fighting over it. I think there should be non, yeah, like essentially nonviolent ways to update society. And, and, you know, democracy is supposed to be this, but it's still essentially an adversarial process. You're kicking out the previous people. They're supposed to be removed from power somehow. It's not that you're, giving them better tools or like giving them better personnel that are going to work for them better. Right. And so you, you've been thinking about these social technologies, tools for statecraft. We don't have any you know set answers now, but what are your hunches for what you wish more people understood or were thinking about it or, or directions that, that we should even look to? Yeah. I, so I think one of the big things we've kind of discovered through Palladium Mag and through, through our sort of general investigations is just that fact that all societies are ruled by some elite. There is an elite. They do have power. There's not much you can do about that unless you just somehow become extremely powerful yourself. And the coordination and institutional quality of that elite, just in terms of their competence, what social technologies they use to get along with each other and coordinate with each other, the, the quality of their institutions, that is really the most important factor in society. You know, you look at the difference between Kazakhstan and Venezuela. We've had articles on both those countries. They're, they're in very similar positions. It's kind of like post-colonial oil rich countries. And, and, you know, one's in sort of the Russian sphere, one's in more in the American sphere, but not really, or sort of. And in Venezuela, things have really not worked out very well because, well, the people in charge of Venezuela right now are not competent. They're not well-coordinated. The Venezuelan state has always been really weak. The country's kind of hard to rule well. And so you have this situation where you have a weak elite, a weak state, and does a bunch of really dumb things, and society's kind of collapsing. Meanwhile, in Kazakhstan, getting much richer, things are working really well because they've had, you know, this guy, uh, Nur Sultan, uh, in charge of the place for the last 30 years or something since, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I think he's stepping down recently and he's got, well, he and, and whoever is ruling with him, the actual more broad elite there by whatever mechanism, they're doing a good job. And then you look, you can look into like specific technologies that the elite will use. Uh, Sam Oburia did a great article for us on Botswana and the succession dynamics in Botswana and, and how they, 
like they have a very competent regime that has managed many interesting transitions through the Cold War, through colonization, decolonization, and, and the modern era with a regime intact that, that has actually, despite like on paper, really bad circumstances done extremely well, given those circumstances. And, and they're one of their big mechanisms is like ever since they've been a democracy, uh, well, the next president or prime minister, I forget which they have, um, is it's president, I think is the previous one's vice president, like, like clockwork. And so they have this very clear succession pattern where someone is trained up in office and then becomes the head office and then trains up their successor and then they become the, the head. And then more broadly, the elite has, has coordinated things well and they do very well. And then you get stuff like China. It's like democracy is not the operative variable here. It's whether you have a competent ruling elite. And what are their institutions? How are they managing things? How are they solving the key problems? And so that's the thing that I think is like an underappreciated fact is just how important it is. The elite institutions, basically, and the quality of the elite, the competence of the elite is so important for making society work properly and so underemphasized in our usual narratives. Yeah. And what types of things tend to work well or not work well in, in terms of dealing with that? Um, it's hard to give like any big answer like oh this will work well or that, who's that, doing it really that well. won't work well. yeah so china yeah. kazakhstan yeah. uh botswana like these are a couple examples of things we've we've listed as being competent the american regime you know in the accelerating development years until 1973 was very competent it's like look at a software system and try to pick out like what are the things that are done well here versus not done well here and like okay, well, when it's done well, it's going to be really tight and small and like well-written code. And when it's not done so well, it's going to be this bloated thing with a bunch of redundant components and contradictions and bugs and so on. But a lot of the actual secret sauce is not like, oh, they used this pattern and these guys used that pattern. Right. And like, that's the big determining factor. It's, it's sort of not like that. It's like just how much junk and entropy do you have there versus how much like, decisive order and good decisions do you have that it really just comes down to this almost irreducible thing of you just need lots of competence and good decisions and so when you talk about governance futurism uh how much do you think is hey just we need to change our narrative PTL talks about this a lot in terms of getting people excited about the future again versus you know we need to change the fundamental structure of how our institutions work i think you need both um and i think like one begets the other to a limited degree so in terms of our fundamental narrative, the thing that I think needs to be changed is like, again, I think we need an answer to some of these problems that liberalism has just kind of not dealt with. And that's a very difficult philosophical problem. I don't have the answer, but, uh, you know, I think people should be looking at it. And then in terms of the governance structures and the actual structure of things, I think, yeah, that also, you know, our institutions need to be rebooted, revitalized and so on. I don't think it comes down to just like, optimism people believing in the future and so on like my my quip on that is always like well optimism is a rational belief that large upsides are possible right and so large upsides being possible is in many ways like actual material fact it's not a psychological fact it's it's is it actually possible to have big wins 
do you have experience having big wins? Do you know how to have big wins? And if you have that material uh, basis, you will be optimistic. If you don't have that material basis, you will not be optimistic. Or if you somehow trick yourself into being optimistic despite not having that material basis, that optimism is, is going to be a false optimism. It's not going to work and it will soon become jaded. Um, and so like, I think, well, I think like optimism is a, a very important thing. I think it's like a symptom in a way of, or maybe not a symptom, but like a byproduct of a more fundamental thing, which is, is it actually possible to do big things, big, good, positive things? And that comes down to quality of institutions, competence, general sort of where you are in history, etc. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Palladium. Where are you right now? What, what are your hopes for it? And um... yeah, so I mean, we, we've given a really good background, I think, with this discussion in terms of like the way we're thinking about the general set of problems we have. So the purpose of Palladium really is, okay, let's intellectually respond to this crisis. We have a crisis in our society. We have to be thinking differently somehow. That's going to entail looking outside of our current paradigm, being willing to sort of slay the sacred cow, you know, also looking within our paradigm of, of well, what's wrong and what's really working? What, what do we not want to throw out? And then that, of course, is a very potentially contentious thing. You're looking outside of the current orthodoxy, like we were talking about, that can be very dangerous. Um, and, and therefore, people are wary of it and will tend to uh, respond negatively if you do it wrong. And, and so I think we're also looking at this problem of like, well, how do you think about stuff outside of the orthodoxy in a responsible way? And so we've been trying to kind of hit that balance at Palladium as well. And as we go over time, we're getting more confident in terms of like our understanding of how the discourse yeah. works, what we, what we should say and what we shouldn't, where the interesting topics are, how to, how to approach these things, actually get insight on them and so on. In terms of big hopes, we want Palladium to be a center of this kind of discourse where we're actually thinking outside the liberal paradigm, trying to think of new big insights that make, can make our society better and not just a pure discourse, but we want to like assemble a lot of people. We want to assemble a network of people around this because I think that's really, again, it comes down to institutions, people, networks. That's so much the thing that actually matters in the world. And so I think if we can assemble you know, a bunch of ambitious, relatively younger people who really want to be thinking about these things and are really thinking in new ways. Um, I think it's a very powerful thing. It's a very positive thing for our society to have lots of ambitious, talented people knowing each other and knowing better ways to think about these problems. And so that's kind of one of the big objectives of Palladium. And we've actually been getting in touch with a lot of really interesting yeah. young people uh, through the project who we then kind of loop into make sure they get introduced to everyone we know who we think they should know make sure we're doing book clubs with them make sure we're hanging out like there's all kinds of stuff we do with that and we want to do more of that so over time i would say the vision is we've got this kind of pinnacle of really good discourse tackling the liberalism problem in like a fresh philosophical way without a pre-canned answer 
and then assembling lots of smart people who want to think about that building networks around the thing yeah and and so like eventually we could get into all kinds of things like you know doing more dedicated fellowships or like crash courses and like here's how you think about this stuff here's what we've learned that's all kind of down the road depends on the the sort of sustainability and success of the project that that sort of defines high level hopes for the thing i i think there's a big opportunity right now in our society to kind of like set up for this crisis moment when the thing actually gets resolved in whatever way and i think ambitious people should be looking at ways to get involved in that transition and this is kind of like the logic that event, that originally motivated me to get out of i used to be an engineer i used to work on on kind of green tech fuel cell stuff and i just realized like okay we actually are going to have this crisis of a non-technological nature essentially a social yeah. we have a bunch of social problems there are a bunch of things that need to be prepared so that we can handle that better um and so i kind of started doing stuff like palladium and yeah so i think i think like gathering more people to think in that particular way and like defining over time closer and closer to like hey let's actually come to an answer let's find answers to these questions yeah, that, that's that's the ambition. Love it. I'm, I'm a big fan. And to sort of summarize, the the sacred cows that we want to sort of expose here are that a you know liberalism has tried to obscure power, but power exists. Yeah, so, some exists. of the ones I'm confident challenging, both because like the orthodoxy isn't as touchy about them. Yeah. Like, there's some topics where it's like you can contradict the orthodoxy because it's like not clear if it's dangerous or not, and generally yeah. uh, permissive. And, and I think let's actually go and talk about power, but in a responsible way. Like a lot of people will talk about power, like Alex Jones will talk about power, right? But Alex Jones talks about power in the way of like, you know, the elite, you know, they're trying to turn you gay like the frogs. They're, 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 they're they, I got documents like the, the, the interdimensional Satanism. Like, you know, they, like he's got, he's got this whole narrative around it, but it's like this very negative kind of like, oh yeah, power is evil. Like the elites are evil. Um, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, but like, I don't think it's productive to come at it with this, with this adversarial yeah. frame. Yeah. You want to, you want to come at it like, okay, power exists in society. Well, we're not challenging it. It's legitimate. Power is legitimate. We're not going to, we're not going to try to step on that, but here's what it's doing here. And like, maybe it could do this better. Yeah. And, and I hope that's sort of a productive thing. Again, I want to do this kind of thing responsibly so it doesn't just create a mess. Yeah, so liberalism's obscuring of power and how power actually works in society, I think, is something that we should be really examining just to get back to a formal understanding of like, well, what is the state even doing? Yeah. Right? Like people think people have all these ideas of the state, like, oh yeah, the state is this kind of social contract that we put together to prevent violence or something. But that's just so far from the actual yeah. reality. Like the, the, the thing that the thing that makes more sense to me is like, no, there's there's some group of people who have all the power and they have a bunch of other people under their subjection and, you know, they're doing various things with that. And that just seems like a much more realistic way of looking at it. And then, but I think our, our instinct is to be negative about that. But in terms of sacred cows, yeah, like let's look at, let's look at actual power. I think just like general skepticism of liberal concepts, rights, equality, liberty, you know, meritocracy, you know, we talked about some of these, 
democracy, free speech, open yeah. society, like all these memes that are kind of like both in our uh, in uh, our closeness to the story that we have about them, and then what it would mean like to you know for them to you know fulfill their their aims. Yeah, and and basically as an object to them both in practice and in theory or something yeah i basically like don't don't just like negate them right it's not like oh yeah we want an unfree society it's like anti-democratic like no no right but maybe no it's it's like let's have skepticism about these concepts but whether these are productive ways to think and productive ways to like organize society and so that like skepticism opens you up to the idea that like, well, it could be true or yeah. it could be just wrong and like needs to be tweaked a little bit or it could be totally wrong. Yeah. And so it's like, keep an open mind on that. But, but yeah, just skepticism towards all liberal concepts and let's actually look at power. Let's actually look at the existence yeah. of the elite. And again, this big question, what's it all about? What are we doing? Yeah. What is human nature? What is, what is, why is man on this earth? Why do we, what is society? What is it for? If we, if it could have something that it was for, like, it, it is not the case that the people came together and like constructed society. Right. It, in any case, it, it, if anything, it's, it's sort of the opposite. Like society has constructed our conception of individuality right. very thoroughly. Yeah. And so you have this thing of like society, it's kind of the, the thing that exists prior to the right. individual. Well, what is it? What is it for? What is it doing? Yeah. What's its purpose? What should we do with it? The thesis of the book, Sovereign Individual, is basically that over the next, you know, 30 and i mean i wrote this book in 1990s but that over the story of this century is we're transforming from citizens uh, of governments to customers of governments and we exist uh you know we used to exist for us to serve governments and now governments exist to serve us yeah so that's a very interesting thesis and i would just flat out contradict it yeah i I mean so i think samo's uh samo buria has has put out some really interesting content on this subject in particular but the centralizing effect of power uh, oh, sorry, of, of technology, which is a form of power. A lot of people have these narratives around technology. Technology is decentralizing. You know, the internet allows us all to talk to each other. And his kind of contention with that was like, no, wait a minute. The internet allows mass surveillance, like homogenizing control of discourse. Like it's actually a centralizing, homogenizing technology that allows an elite to more effectively dominate. And even if not through the vehicle of the nation state, uh, though the nation state is still alive and kicking, but even if not through that vehicle, the power is still there. And, and the acceleration of means that we have with technology, well, means is just the substance of power, the ability to affect outcomes. You know, technology as the acceleration of means is going to be an acceleration of power. Power tends towards monopoly. So you're going to get more powerful monopolies on power over time with accelerating technology. And I think like if you just look at the history of civilization, it's this pattern of technology has always ended up centralizing things. Like people say, oh, yeah, the the printing press and the gun decentralized things, created democracy and so on. It's like, well, okay. And on the other hand, it allowed mass propaganda and mass conscription armies because you didn't have to train people as much and – Suddenly, whoever could manufacture the guns, which is a very centralized operation, could and, and distribute the guns and train the soldiers, again, all very concentrated operations, could then have this huge dominating effect on on war as compared to the, the more previous decentralized feudal system where it was like, okay, you got a few knights, the knights are relatively free, they engage in each, with each other in this system of chivalry, blah, blah, blah. 
much more decentralized, but then the guns and so on actually were a huge centralization. And so you look at that history of technology and civilization, you see this centralization over time. Even into the modern era, I think we are substantially more controlled, more prescribed um, in our lives now than we were, say, 100 years ago, um, which isn't to say our lives are worse, just that the acceleration of logistics has meant that things are more controllable. So I'm very skeptical that this trend will reverse anytime soon. And if it does reverse, I would expect it to reverse only through degradation of our ability to affect outcomes. In other words, loss of technologies, loss of coordination, etc. Then you can get sort of anarchy um, and, and decay scenarios. But I think in many ways, those are bad things. Yeah. And, and so like, and this is kind of a disturbing narrative, right? It's like, well, the end point of this, like with ultimate technology is like society is going to be dominated by a single will. And like, maybe that's all of us thinking together, or maybe that's like some big super brain somewhere tells us all what to think, but there isn't, it's, I think the end state of the thing is actually less individuality, less sort of diversity of, well, a functional system has diversity in it because it needs different things going on, but less, less like sovereignty, less internal sovereignty. And that's like kind of a scary prospect. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, I get that people don't want that to happen and they don't want it to be true and, um, and so on. But, but on the other hand, I think it's kind of just the way the universe is going. And again, like, you know, death and taxes, <laughs> are, uh, inevitable things taxes over time will tend towards 100 percent uh but the state will of course gracefully allow you to keep some 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 uh, of your your work so that you can more uh more effectively serve the state in your role as an independent economic actor uh or whatever but like basically that that the thing is going to be i think it's gonna be really centralized and or not maybe not centralized but but really controlled and we have to find ways to prepare ourselves philosophically yeah. for this or like contend with it philosophically. Like, is this a bad thing? If so, like civilization is a bad thing. Yeah. Can this be a good thing? I mean, certainly it could be a bad thing. Um, if it was done wrong, can it be done right? I think that's a really important question. And, and so, yeah, I, I just like disagree with the thesis that, that, that we're going to see a, a decentralization and the ability of individuals to be sovereign. I think we're going to see precisely the opposite. Right. That's a worthy, worthy rebuttal. My guest today has been Wolf Tyvee. If you've enjoyed this conversation, uh, I, I very much have. Uh, definitely check out Palladium Mag for all the latest and, and upcoming. What, 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 any last minute plugs in terms of what, pe what people can expect? Yeah. Check out Palladium Mag. We're really just trying to figure out the big questions of the future in terms of governance and where America needs to go um, by looking outside of our current box and looking around the world. So yeah, check us out. Um, this was a really fun conversation. Thanks. Awesome. For yeah, thank on. you so much for coming on, Wolf. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc/networkcatalyst. 